Sefer Advarim is quite unique and very different than the books of the Torah that preceded it. Virtually all of Sefer Advarim is recorded in the first person because it is really a speech that Moshe is giving. It is primarily Moshe's farewell or valedictory address to the Jewish people close to the time of his death and close to the time of their entry into the land of Eretz Yisrael. It is notable in that sense that the common phrase which you are familiar with ever since Moshe came onto the scene, Vedabar Hashem or Moshe Lemor, or some variation thereof, which we have heard so many times, Hashem tells Moshe to tell something to the Jewish people, that common, almost ubiquitous phrase is completely absent from almost all of Sefer Dvarim, and not making an appearance until the very end, until Prakim Lamed Aleph and Lamed Bet. Rather, instead we have, as we read in the opening words of this week's Parsha, Eilah HaDvarim Asher Diber, Moshe El Kol Yisrael. Dvarim is primarily Moshe speech. Not what Hashem told Moshe, but what Moshe himself wanted to tell the Jewish people. And what does he want to tell the Jewish people? So if one does a cursory survey of the Psukim in Sefer Dvarim, we find many different themes. There are times where he's rebuking the people, like at the outset, but there are other times where he's encouraging or exhorting the people towards greater Torah observance. There are times where he repeats and has recollections of previous significant experiences that occurred to the Jewish people and Moshe together in the desert. And then there's also areas of Sefer Dvarim which relate to mitzvos. Sometimes Moshe is reviewing or even elaborating on previous mitzvos that had been mentioned. And there are even examples of Moshe mentioning mitzvos for the very first time. And all of this, the unique nature of it being from Moshe more than Hashem, the very different themes that have come across, all of this, not surprisingly, invites numerous mafarshim over the centuries to try to provide a certain structure and a framework for understanding uh, the Sefer, because it really needs that more than most other Sfarim, which are uh, either narrative-driven or clearly mitzvah-driven. Among the many efforts that have been made in this vein, perhaps one of the most important and consequential is that of the Ramban, that he gives in his introduction, his Hakdama to Sefer Dvarim. The Ramban begins by noting, as is very familiar, that on the one hand, the main theme, he thinks, is Mishnah Torah. Dvarim is known as Mishnah Torah, which is the idea of reviewing or the repetition of the Torah, because the main emphasis, says the Ramban, is for Moshe to review important points before the Jewish people enter Eretz Yisrael, to underscore those importance and to encourage the people in their observance. In that vein, right at the outset, the Ramban notes what is missing from Sefer Dvarim, and that is virtually any mention of anything that had been previously taught in Vayikra, in Torah's Kohanim. Anything relating to the Kohanim, says Ramban, you will not find repeated in Dvarim. Not about the Karbanos, not about the Tumah and Tahara, or anything relating to the Kohanim and their service. And the Ramban explains this based on an idea which is found in the Gemara, Kohanim Zrizim Haim. The Kohanim are known to be very, very careful in the mitzvos, full of enthusiasm and alacrity, and therefore they didn't need this repetition in Dvarim the way the rest of the Jewish people did. However, says Ramban, the rest of the Jewish people, there is a lot of repetition and reinforcement and re- reminding the Jewish people about the importance of specific mitzvos. Either, says Ramban, because there's extra details and explanation that is offered in Dvarim, so therefore there's a certain substantive change and benefit and addition information that's given in, in Dvarim, excuse me. And other times, says the Ramban, 
even if it's already been mentioned numerous times, it's still going to be repeated again and again, just because that itself encourages and highlights and underscores the importance. So for example, he says like Avodah Zarah, Azhara Marubo Zuach it's repeated time and time again, and we're not necessarily changing or adding the information, but just the repetition underscores the importance of it. And as Ramban, there are times sometimes as it were Moshe raises his voice sometimes the presentation will also uh, add emphasis to the Jewish people the last point the Ramban mentions which is his most novel in the Chudash and therefore controversial is he talks about the mitzvahs which are mentioned in Dvarim for the first time mitzvahs which had never previously been mentioned for example Yibum the laws of slander Motzi Shemra the laws of divorce Adam Zomimim and others. So how come they were never mentioned before? So the simplest understanding is that Hashem is only telling Moshe about them for the very first time in this final year, at the end of the final year of their time in the desert. The Ramban does not accept that, and the Ramban says, amazingly, All of these had been taught to Moshe a long time ago, either literally when he was still in Harsinai, or at latest, sometimes from the Oel Moed, sometime early in that first year when they were in the desert, but for sure, Kodim HaMaraglim, says the Ramban, before the sin of the Maraglim. However, where they're standing now, right about to go into Eretz Yisrael, in Arvot Moav, the plains of Moav, Lo Shulo, they did not have any new mitzvos, which basically means, in essence, that according to the Ramban, Moshe was holding on to these mitzvos for almost 40 years, and only taught the Jewish people, and only included them in the Torah now. Why would Moshe do that? So says the Ramban, he gives one of two possible reasons. Either lo nichtivu mitzvahs besfarim harishonim shidabrem yotzei mitzrayim because lo nahagu ba'osan ha-mitzvahs rakbaretz, even though these are not necessarily farming mitzvahs, things that relate to the land of Eretz Yisrael, but nevertheless, maybe for some reason, these mitzvahs did not apply when they were in the desert. They only started being active mitzvahs and obligations when they got into Eretz Yisrael. This is obviously a very novel idea and potentially very, very difficult to accept. Numerous other commentaries reject the Ramban based on the weakness of this point, but the Ramban doesn't mention it. Or, says the Ramban, Or, there are very infrequent mitzvahs, mitzvahs are not going to be so important and necessary, and therefore Moshe and Hashem felt no need to mention them until they're about to go into Eretz Yisrael. Some of Farshim do mention, within the opinion of the Ramban, that if an individual needed a particular question or had a relevant particular mitzvah that was not mentioned until now but it came up in the desert then maybe Moshe orally Baal told him that but to be actually written in the Torah it was held from the Jewish people until now as Moshe begins his farewell address to the nation at the beginning of Sefer and Parshas Dvarim a number of locations are mentioned at the end of the initial pasuk which seem to on the surface level, serve the purpose of pinpointing the location of Moshe's speech. However, we have a tradition in Chazal that, in fact, these locations are actually hints to previous episodes in the history of the Jewish people while they're in the desert, locations in which they had committed one grave sin or another. However, instead of coming outright and mentioning the sin explicitly and giving them rebuke for that sin, Moshe, to preserve the dignity of the Jewish people, only makes a subtle and oblique reference, a reference that they would get and hopefully internalize and learn the lesson from, but not in a way that would actually, God forbid, embarrass them. 
Well, with that background in mind, the last phrase in the opening Pasuk of our Parsha refers to a place called Di-Zahav. Now, wherever that may be alluding to, if there is some geographical place that relates to Moshe, but in terms of the more deeper theological message that Moshe was trying to convey to the Jewish people and that we're supposed to take from this, so Rashi, at the end of the Pasuk, quotes in a very abbreviated way, the interpretation of Chazal in the Gemara in Masech Brachos and Daf Lamed Beis. Picking up on the word Zahav, Chazal tells us this is a reference to the Egel Hazahav, the sin of the golden calf. Again, hinted at obliquely. If you take a look at the Gemara itself, and not just Rashi's citation, the fuller passage in the Gemara makes the additional point that, in a very powerful way, that it's not just the word Zahav, gold, but also D, that is part of the story. D meaning from the Hebrew word Vidai, or sufficient. And as the Gemara says, putting the words into Moshe's mouth, that Moshe, in essence, is offering a defense of sorts for the Jewish people's sin, that it was because Hashem gave them so much gold and silver when they were leaving Egypt, to the point that the Jewish people actually had to say, die, it's enough, we have so much we don't need anymore. So Moshe basically says, you gave them so much gold and silver, you gave them so much excess wealth, what did you expect when people have too much money they always make mistakes, and this is what happened to the Jewish people. They had excess gold, and they used it for the wrong thing with the Egel HaZahav. The Gemara goes on to make this point with a further, very evocative, provocative uh, mushal or metaphor about a father who has a son, and he bathes him, and he anoints him, and he feeds him, and he gets him into the great mood, feeling good about himself, looking good, and then he gives him a kis al savaro, basically a wallet full of money, and with that mood and with all that money, Hoshiva al Zonos, he puts his son right in front of the house of the house of ill repute. Of course, theoretically the son could walk away and not commit any terrible sin. But we understand, says the Gemara, that if you set up your son like that in such circumstances, Mayasa Osoha ben Shaloyechta. Can we really fault the son for going into that house of ill repute? Can we really fault him for using that money to commit a terrible sin? On some level, it's the father's responsibility for setting him up for failure. So too, the Gemara is telling us, Moshe says to Hashem, yes, the Jewish people shouldn't have made the golden calf, but can you completely blame them? Aren't you somewhat responsible? You gave them so much gold. How could you expect that they would not be uh, tempted or fall by the wayside and make a mistake given how much excess wealth and unnecessary gold that you gave them? This defense of sorts, as we mentioned, for their sin is really quite interesting. And as Rav Soloveitchik notes, what is particularly curious about this defense is the timing. Why did Moshe wait 38 years to offer this defense? Why didn't he, if it's, if it's a legitimate line of argument in defense of the Jewish people, why didn't Moshe offer this argument at the time when the sin of the golden calf was taking place? On the contrary, we read in Sefer Shmos, when Moshe is on Harsinai and he's told about the sin, instead of defending the people, Moshe gives a full Confession, he pleads guilty. The sin, the people did a terrible sin. What happened to the defense that we're only hearing about it now, 38 plus years later? So in order to explain this, our Salvechik says it follows. At the time, Moshe realized that the only thing that could save the people was offering a full and sincere confession, a vidui. And in order for a confession or apology to be sincere and complete, it cannot have any strings attached, there can't be any wavering, there can't be any justifications or excuses. One just has to accept responsibility for their mistake, for their sin. 
Because if you apologize or try to confess, but in the same breath are offering excuses or mitigating circumstances, even if they're legitimate potentially, but those excuses undermine the confession. Salvechik points out that we have other examples in Jewish history where you can see the contrast between a full confession, which is effective, and one which is with excuses, which doesn't work. A very sharp example, which Rav Salvechik gives for this contrast, is the difference between Shaul and David. When Shaul was confronted with his mistake of not killing Agag, he made excuses, and he loses his kingship, he loses the malucha. Whereas David, when he was confronted with his indiscretion with Bathsheba, he fully and completely confesses, and he is in fact forgiven, and his kingship is spared. Cesar Salvechik, again, at the time of the sin of the golden calf, Moshe made a full confession, and he mentioned the gold, not because it was a defense, but because it strengthened the indictment. They got a gift of so much gold, and ungratefully, they abused that gift to commit an act of treachery against Hashem. This sin is considered so grave, Salvechik points out, that Rashi, back in Sefer Shmos, in that very same Perek, points out that Hashem tells Moshe and tells the Jewish people, for all time, whenever I make an accounting of a new sin or a new error and a mistake the Jewish people make, I will always bring into account the sin of the Egel. That will always come to bear. Every punishment will always be connected back to and added on to the sin, the account of the Egel. So with that in mind, 38 years later, Rav Salvechik said, Moshe was ready to offer a new line of argument, a new rationalization, a new line of defense to help mitigate not the initial sin and the initial punishment that the Jewish people deserved, and he gave a full defense, uh, full confession for. But the fact that there was a recurring punishment that was connected to the Egel, that Moshe tries to diffuse with this argument for mitigation. And the lesson I think here is, we see from this the importance of a sincere and full confession, and if there are mitigating circumstances, to realize maybe those can come, but only at a later time, if at all. A good percentage of Moshe's farewell address to the Jewish people contained in Sefer Dvarim includes Moshe's rebuke and criticism of the people, often subtle but still unmistakably critical of the people, for past sins and previous events. In a fascinating description, the Medrash in Dvarim Rabbah, right at the outset of our Parsha, describes that in fact Moshe was reticent and really didn't want to include this dimension in his final speech to his beloved nation. He didn't want to rebuke them or criticize them. In explaining Moshe's hesitancy, the Medrash gives a fascinating parable and compares this to a apprentice who was with his master, the person who was teaching him the trade, and he's learning the trade of precious stones, a gem setter, I guess. And it describes how early on in his training, he's walking with his teacher and he sees something on the street which he thinks is a precious stone. But when he goes to pick it up, he burns his hand because, in fact, he made a mistake. It was actually a burning coal. A short while later, they're once again walking down the street. And again, the apprentice sees something shiny on the floor. But he, this time, he doesn't pick it up. His master tells him to do so. And he says, "Why? I don't want to do that. I, last time I did it, I burnt myself. And the apprentice is taught a lesson that, in fact, this time, it's actually a precious stone. He made the opposite mistake as he had made the first time. And it was only through this trial and error, with proper guidance of his teacher, that he is slowly but surely learning to discern between things that look very similar, but in fact are quite different. 
The Nimshal, the lesson, says the Medrash, is that's exactly what happened here as well. Moshe is reticent. He doesn't want to rebuke the people because he reminds Hashem, the last time I did this, when the Jewish people were complaining about water, and I criticized them, say for Bamidbar and Perachaf, and I said, Shimon Hamorim, I got upset at them for rebelling against you. You punished me. You aren't letting me go into Eretz Yisrael because of that. Now you want me to rebuke them again? So Hashem responds and explains to him, Al Don't worry, you should rebuke them. After all, the last time you did it, back in Bamidbar, you made a mistake in how you did it. You didn't rebuke them the right way. You rebuked them out of anger. And in the heat of anger, almost nothing ever gets done well, and certainly not criticism or rebuke. It will not be taken well and not be said the right way when you do it out of anger. But these words that you're saying now, all these years later, you are wiser, you are more mature, you are more experienced, and it's not in the heat of the passion of the moment. These words are going to be absolutely appropriate rebuke. You'll say it in the right way, it'll be received in the right way. And as the Pasuk tells us, Tupsukim later in Pasuk Gimel, Hashem endorses the words of Moshe as the Torah attests that these were the words that Diber Moshe ben Israel, Tziva Hashem Oso Elegem. Hashem identifies with the words of Moshe. Fascinatingly, this can be this medrash should be or can be understood in conjunction with another medrash from a lesser known collection known as the Medrash Hagodol. And there the medrash even goes further. It's not just that Moshe is given, you know, the kind of a yeshakoach, or he has a, a learning process, where he learns the difference between good rebuke and bad rebuke, just like the apprentice learned to tell the difference the subtle but all-important difference between what was in fact the burning coal, what was in fact the precious stone, Moshe as well. He realizes that bad rebuke can be like a burning coal, it could burn him, it could burn the people, but then there is a kind of rebuke that is like a precious stone, which, which can be wonderful. Not only did that happen, but according to the Medrash HaGadol, in fact, Hashem is so enthusiastic about Moshe's rebuke here in Devarim that he says it is comparable or even greater than the Aseris Adibros. Chaviva alai tochachas Moshe Yisrael kaseris Adibros. It is as beloved to me as the Aseris Adibros. Eila Hadvarim and the Aseris Hadibros, the play on words. In fact, there's a connection between them. And the Medrash here, Hagadol, the Medrash goes further and says something really, really incredible. Not only did Moshe understand the lesson of all people, says the Medrash, that tzaddikim understand that before they depart from this world, before they die, they must give a last ethical will and testament, so to speak, to their followers, to their family. They have to give one final rebuke, and it doesn't, I don't mean literally rebuke, but it means give ethical guidance to their descendants, to their students who will be living on beyond them. And not only is Moshe doing that at the close of his life, but more than that, because he did it in such a correct way, and again, here we can keep in mind what we just saw from the Dvarim Rabbah from the Medrash Rabbah, now Moshe has learned how to give rebuke in the correct way, says the Medrash HaGadol, these words are not only as great or beloved as Aserah Sedebros, they are even more beloved than Aserah Sedebros. After all, says the Medrash, even though the Aserah Sedebros were so inspiring and incredible, and the Jewish people responded, Na'asev and Nishma, but not a short while later, they rebelled with the Chet Egel. However, when it comes to the rebuke of Moshe here in Sefer Dvarim, then, the Jewish people corrected themselves and the high spiritual level that they were at now actually was able to remain for a certain amount of time, much longer than it had 
when it came to the Dibros. And as a result, the Jewish people cleave to Hashem and His Torah, as we will read about just in a few prakim from now, next week, as the Apostolic says, You, the Jewish people, cleave to Hashem. And in the telling of this Medrash, Moshe gets credit for that. It's his proper and appropriate rebuke now, which helped the Jewish people reach that level of Atem Hadvekim. And therefore Hashem says to Moshe, Since the Jewish people cleave to me because of your rebuke, These words will only be accredited to you. Hashem says, I'll take my name out. And that's why the Pasuk begins in our parsha, Moshe El Kol Yisrael, but it doesn't mention Hashem's name as well. And there's a very valuable lesson I think we learned from this. Number one is, like Moshe, we should never be excited to give rebuke to anybody, students or children. We should be resident. It shouldn't be something that we look forward to, that we're enthusiastic about. On the other hand, we have to realize, like Moshe, sometimes it's appropriate. But we have to learn not to do it when we're angry, to do it sensitively, carefully, one that respects the dignity of the people who are speaking to, but gives them constructive criticism so they can learn like the Jewish people did and become better than they were before. If we can do that, we learn the lesson of Moshe and the Jewish people from the opening of our Parsha. As the Torah introduces Moshe's final and farewell address to the Jewish people, it tells us that the speech will take place after the Jewish army has defeated Sichon, the king of Amori, who dwelt in Cheshbon, as well as defeated Og Melchabashan, Similarly, we defeated Og, the king of Abashan, who lived in Ashtarot in Edrei. The question, quite simply, is why is it necessary for us to know this detail? In what way is knowing that this great and grand speech, this valedictory address that Moshe will give the Jewish people before he dies, in what way is there value added to knowing that it took place after the de- defeat of Sichon and Og? The Sfasemes quotes his grandfather, the Chadusha Harim, who explains that on a deeper level there was a spiritual battle that was waged as well when we met these two kings and their armies on the battlefield. It was a spiritual battle because these two kings represented dark, anti-spiritual forces which needed to be defeated before Moshe could take leave of the people, before the people could eventually enter into the land of Eretz Yisrael. Sichon is identified as being the king who lived in Cheshbon. Cheshbon, says the Chedusha Harim, is a reference to the Shoresh Machshavos Raos, the root of all of the mistaken calculations that we make. When we are considering doing something other than the right thing, when we eventually do something that we know we shouldn't do, so one of the primary reasons that that happens is these machshavos raos, this cheshbon, these calculations that we make. There are intellectual pulls, intellectual forces in our mind that pull us away. They distract us. Sometimes they paralyze us with their analysis and they prevent one way or another us from doing what in our heart and what our gut we really know is correct. But because of all of the cheshbon, because of all of the cheshbonos, the various thoughts and calculations that we make, intellectual and rational calculations, often we convince ourselves that there are other perspectives or at very least the paralysis by analysis and we don't act. Next we defeated Og, who was located Be'edrei. Edrei is an Aramaic for Zeroah, or the arm or the forearm. And this refers to, says the Chedusha Harim, action. 
It's one thing to have thoughts, but thoughts have to lead to action. And if we have the right action, then we do the right things. But when we have the wrong cheshbon, that leads to the wrong be'edre, that leads to the wrong action. Action which is influenced by seichel. It's that two-step process that can get us into trouble. Says the Chedush Arim, before we went into Eretz Yisrael, before Moshe's job could be complete, we needed to conquer cheshbon and conquer be'edre. That is to say, because the Jewish people are not supposed to be governed by either rational or intellectual or action. There's something above both of those, a third and higher dimension, and that is emuna, pure faith. And in order for the emuna to be the determining factor, in order for faith to govern all of our thoughts and actions, the other two first needed to be defeated, as it were, put in their place. There's an incredibly vital role, absolutely vital, of machshava and ma'aseh. But they only work if they're being controlled and influenced by the emunah. The Chadush Arim adds that this is symbolized by the tefillin that we wear. One on our head, the shalrosh, and one on our arm, facing our heart, the shalyad. The shalrosh obviously symbolizes the intellectual and the rational. We put tefillin on our head to show that emunah, the belief in Hashem and Shema Yisrael, which is in that tefillin, must be even above intellectual as much as we respect and put on a great pedestal the intellect. But above that has to be our amuna, has to be our faith and our commitment to Hashem. From there, the tefillin go down, so to speak, the straps, if you will, leading from the head, passing through the heart, and eventually wrapping around the arm. And the shelyad, which clearly represents, of course, the action the hand, the zroa, the action of a person. And again, as I mentioned, it's not just that we have all of our hand bound by the straps, by the ritus of the tefillin, but the bias, the actual box of the shalyad, is on our inner bicep, focusing our heart, symbolizing that our emuna must control our desires and influence the actions of our heart. The Sfas Emes adds to this beautiful idea of his grandfather that only once we have this connection between both Machshava and Misa all subsumed under the rubric of and under the umbrella of Emuna, only then are we ready to actually say the Kriyashma. The Gemara is very critical of someone who says Kriyashma without wearing their tefillin. It would be like an Edus Sheker. But there's a symbiotic relationship between the Shema, which we proclaim our, um, proclaim our Emuna and Hashem, and the two tefillin, which combine to bind those two aspects of our life, our thoughts and our deeds, under the tefillin symbolized by the Shema as well. We'll just add one last point, which is that we had to conquer and go through Cheshbon to get to Eretz Yisrael, because the reality is that in our lives, in Eretz Yisrael, both then and now, it's never made any sense purely based on Cheshbon. If you were just relying on Cheshbon, we could never have conquered Eretz Yisrael to begin with, and no one would ever move, not in various points in history, and not even in the current and modern Aliyah. It's always happened because people are willing to conquer their cheshbon, not be irrational or, irrespons- or irresponsible, but ultimately, though, take a leap of faith based on the Amuna, which was symbolized and the trail was blazed in that initial conquest, which first took care of Sichon and cheshbon, Og Be'edrei, and then allowed us to go into the Eretz Ha'amunah, the land of faith, the people of faith inheriting it, when Eretz Yisrael became the home once and forever of the Jewish people.
In introducing Moshe's farewell address to the people that begins Sefer Dvarim, the Torah mentions a number of locations. And as Rashi quotes from Chazal, these are not actual names of locations, but rather hints, Ramazim, <coughs> which are intended to subtly and even obliquely allude to previous, more well-known locations in which the Jewish people had transgressed various serious uh, Isurim and made terrible mistakes in the earlier part of their almost now 40-year sojourn in the desert. And the issue which is being raised, as Rashi mentions, is that of Kavad Habrios, that Moshe, even though he wants to rebuke the people for these past sins, but he does so in this indirect, uh, more subtle, even oblique way, in order not to embarrass them and to preserve their dignity, the idea known as Kavod Habrios. While this is clearly an important idea, as evidenced by this Pasuk and other instances in the Torah, uh, from the Torah itself it seems that this is merely a Hashkafic or Musar idea. However, in the Gemara Masech Brachos, in Daf Yutes and Daf Chaf, we have a fascinating discussion in which the issue is raised, to what extent is this not only an ethical principle, a Musar idea, but even a Halachic principle? To what extent would preserving someone's dignity even impact or change the halacha. And the Gemara concludes basically that there are three different situations in which we'd have to analyze and potentially have different rulings. The first case, says the Gemara, is if a person is wearing shotnas in public and they realize that, in fact, this is prohibited clothing. They didn't know and now all of a sudden they find out when they're in public. The Gemara says here we're talking about an active prohibition of a iser daraisa, an active transgression of such a serious avera, a person must take off the clothing right away. It's prohibited to walk around even for a small amount of time with the clothing, even though by doing so, if you have no other clothing, you're going to be embarrassed. Yes, it'll compromise your covenant brios, but that does not allow you to violate a iser daraisa in an active way. However, the Gemara mentions two other categories in which we would have a certain allowance in a certain halachic way because of covenant brios. One is if it's only an iser darabanon. The issue at hand is only rabbinic, so then to preserve Kavod Abrios, we would allow you to transgress the Avera. And lastly, says the Gemara, even in the case of Edisar Da'oraisa, we would allow you to transgress if you were only doing so passively. Shave Va'alta'ase. Active violation of Edisar Da'oraisa we've seen is never allowed. But if it's only a passive transgression, then in order to preserve dignity, it is permitted. A very fascinating machlokas in the Rishonim surrounds the question of whether this case and any similar cases, but let's take the specific example of somebody wearing shatnas, does that only apply if you are the one wearing shatnas? Or would it even apply if someone else was wearing shatnas? So for example, the case that is discussed is if you see someone else in the street wearing clothing that you know is prohibited to shatnas, but the person wearing the clothing doesn't know. Are you obligated to basically run over to that person, so to speak, and take off their clothing, embarrassing them, no doubt, but helping them avoid the active prohibition of an Isra Daraisa, or not. So the Rush, in Hilchus Kilayim, based on his understanding of a Yerushalmi, in fact, Paskins, that we distinguish. The Gemara only requires you to embarrass yourself and to compromise your own Kavad Abrios in order to avoid Isra Daraisa, when it's your Kavad Abrios. However, if it's somebody else, and that other person doesn't even realize they're transgressing, says the Rush, basically, follow the person home, don't embarrass him in public, wait till he gets home, and then only quietly and privately tell him that he was wearing shotnas. But you have no right to embarrass someone in public, and you have no obligation to embarrass them in public. 
our Gemara that we mentioned from Brachos was only talking about your covenant of Brios, but it doesn't allow you to compromise and embarrass someone else. However, the Rambam and Hilchos Kilayim in Perak Yud argues on the rush, and the Rambam Paskins basically that it doesn't matter whether it's your covenant of Brios or someone else's covenant of Brios, if you're the one who is aware of the transgression, and we're discussing an active violation of an Isra Del Raisa, like Shatnas would be, then you are obligated to avoid and stop that Isser as soon as possible, even if it means compromising on Kavod Brios, whether it's your Kavod Brios or anybody else. This Machlokas Rishonim is reflected in a Machlokas in the Shulchan Aruch, where the Machaber, the Shulchan Aruch himself, paskins Lachumra like the Shulchan Aruch, like the, excuse me, like the Rambam, and the Ramah is Mekil like the Rush, that you do not have to embarrass someone else, you can wait till they get home. This Machlokas has many ramifications, but perhaps one we'll mention briefly is a very, very famous tshuva of the Noda Yehuda. The Noda Yehuda was asked a question by somebody who it seems that the mo- when he was asking the question was a, a pious and learned man, but he admits to the Noda Yehuda that many years earlier, he, while he was learning in yeshiva, it seems, he lived in someone's house, he boarded in someone's house, he eventually married their daughter, so it's now his in-laws, but before they were his in-laws, and he lived at their house, he actually had a multi-year affair with the wife of the house, with his mother-in-law. The question now is, does he have to tell his father-in-law, who by, by law is actually not allowed to stay married to his wife? So you can imagine, obviously, this would cause great humiliation uh, in the family to tell his father-in-law that he'd had an affair with his mother-in-law. It's, 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 it's almost impossible to believe case, but this is what the Noda Behuda brings down. In essence, says the Noda Behuda, at first, this seems to be exactly the machlokas we've seen. Because the person, in this case the son-in-law, he knows that the father-in-law is beshogeg, living with someone, his wife, that he's not allowed to. But the person doesn't know. But if I tell him, he'll be embarrassed. It's like telling someone who didn't know they were wearing shatnas that they were wearing shatnas. And therefore it would seem, says the Noda Behuda, at first glance, that as an Ashkenazi posek, he has a right to follow the Rosh and the Ramah, who are mekil, that say you have no chiyuv to embarrass someone, if someone else, even if they're violating a very serious Avera. However, in the end, the Nodibhuda is Machmir in this case, because he says you cannot compare this to the case of Shatnez, because here, first of all, one of the parties, the wife, was Mazid. But second of all, and more importantly, he says, in the case of the Kilaim, it's a one-time event. The person's wearing the clothing until they get home, then you'll tell them. But here there will be multiple Isurim, the husband and wife will be living together for who knows how much longer. And therefore he says, that's so severe that he thinks even the Ramah, even the Rush would require you to tell the father, to tell the father-in-law, I should say, even though, of course, it would lead, in this instance, to some very difficult and awkward situation.